Welcome to Theatrically Speaking, the very first playwriting podcast. My name is Jonah Knight. Season one is republishing the long-lost first episodes of the show from back in 2007. And season two begins the new episodes. Now, a few things have changed since 2007, like the website. For more information about Theatrically Speaking or my other podcasts, please visit actualstorypodcasting.com. Next, back in 2007, you could number your episodes however you like, and I did this very creative numbering system that included episodes 4.1, 4.15, 4.2, and no actual episode 4. The numbering that the episodes have in your feed is the order that you should listen to them. So, welcome in to the Theatrically Speaking Wayback Machine. It's time to talk some plays. I hate movies, I don't watch TV, I can't read books, and I don't take kids to the zoo. Video games are gonna rot your brain, and all these internets are for idiots. But I love you, baby dear, but you ain't no Shakespeare. Try to make me to be high class, and I would David Bammett on your ass. Welcome to Theatrically Speaking. My name is Jonah Knight. This is almost a playwriting podcast. I was gone for a week. Actually, I wasn't gone for a week. I just didn't do a show. Um, But this is the continuation. This is the third in our three-part series on how to incorporate the writing and the use of technical requirements into your play script. Um, I am thinking that because I didn't do a show last week, because I didn't get around to recording it, I may, I may do a bonus episode in a little while. It's, uh, it's early afternoon on Wednesday, and I may have time to do it. Now, of course, having said that, that means that I probably won't. That is what that means. But in the meantime, we're going to get back to uh, costumes and props. We're going to talk about the writing and the requiring of specific costumes and, cro- and uh, props. Uh, tell a couple of anecdotal type stories, and hopefully get a get an attitude, uh, uh, an intent across. Get an ad- yeah, get, I'm gonna get my attitude across for y'all. But um, to start off, start off a little bit differently this time, and I'm going to read an email. You can tell it's an email because when I shake it, it makes noise. Um, and it is from Daniel. If you guys remember, some many episodes ago. I got uh, an email that I paraphrased for y'all from Daniel here. Uh, He's from Taiwan. Well, he's not from Taiwan. He's in Taiwan now. And um, actually, I'm going to read this email because he asks a couple of questions uh, that that I think are interesting and that I think warrant uh, a a response in a public forum. Uh, Because I'm sure that some of these things... Um, you may, you may be wondering yourself, or you may have an opinion on yourself, so I'm just going to read the whole thing. Here we go. Hi, Jonah. Greetings from Taiwan. Hey, what's up? Uh, if you recall, recall from our previous correspondence, my girlfriend and I were putting together the East-West Project, and I found myself to be a playwright-slash-editor by default. Despite certain struggles, the play was performed several weeks ago, and it turned out to be a success. One of our biggest concerns was having a primarily foreign-based audience, as we tend to stick together. However, by the second night, there was a solid 50-50 ratio of foreigners and Taiwanese alike. Since then, we've been to, uh, and I even practiced pronouncing this, um, Makao, 
We've uh, since then we've been to Makeo for the Young Creative Voices workshop in collaboration with Idea 2007. We were invited to teach playwriting and script analysis to the university students and then take part in a collaborative performance. That's very cool. Uh, needless to say, it was an amazing experience that can only be compared to any ending to any Jerry Bruckheimer film, Glorious, Savvy, and a Rock and Roll Explosion. In two weeks, I'm looking forward to temporarily returning to U.S. soil. During the trip, I'll take the GRE and later uh, applying for my MFA in either playwriting or poetry. During my visit, I was also planning on showing my professors a couple of 10-minute scripts, but before doing so, I was wondering if you could advise me on a couple of issues. Is it possible to have a 10-minute play with only one character? What is more common amongst 10-minute festivals slash contests, comedy or drama? Can the playwright request certain clothing to be worn so long as it's a factor in the storyline? I'm fairly confident I know the answer to the latter question, but as per screenwriting, I've heard it's best for the writer not to step on the toes of the director, cinematographer, or costume designer. Hope all is well in the righteous land of Maryland. I'm looking forward to rubbing shoulders with the devil in Phoenix. Thank you for your help. Daniel. Um, my brother, my brother Josh lives out in Phoenix. If you happen to see him, Daniel, say hello. Um, if you, if you know who he is. Um, okay, so there are a couple of things here, uh, and, I'll, and I'll answer some of these, these questions uh, as best I can. Uh, is it possible to have a 10-minute play with only one character? Sure, sure, why not? Um, some people may say that that is a 10-minute play. Some people may say that that's a 10-minute monologue. Some people say a monologue is a play, and some people don't. Um, yeah, why not? Why not? I think that if you're going to have an extended monologue, something like that, something that is going to go on for 10 minutes... Um, then you you need to do a little bit more work, or or not necessarily more work, but it is. I think it's pretty important that you put uh, in the front of your mind the idea of the theatricality and the presentation of a one person show that is to go on for ten minutes. I'll give you an example here in uh, the ten minute play festival that New Playhouse did. Um, uh, Frederick Shorts that we did uh, two a year ago, um, two years ago, uh, we did a play called. Noah and the HOA, ah, Homeowners Association, I remembered it, uh, by Mickey Balmer, a local Maryland playwright. Uh, and this play was essentially, a, uh, it was a one-person play, and um, it was pitched as a 10-minute, though I think running time was closer to 15, 18, 20 minutes long, something like that. Um, one-person play, here's, here's what he did with this play. Uh, the main character in this show was addressing the homeowners association of their local community, and there was a big storm brewing outside. And as uh, he he throughout the 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 play would get calls saying, you know, this person can't come, or there's been a delay because of the weather, and that sort of thing. And so, what he was doing, um, the action of the play was that the the character was reading letters to the homeowners association uh complaining about one of their neighbors building an ark in the backyard uh actually actually a pretty fun play uh now the way we staged it and the way i think it was actually written in the script um and i don't quite remember if it was if it was specified but what we did was we had a second actor on stage sort of sitting in the back he wasn't referred to um by name in the script or anything like that he was just sort of sitting in the back and he was the sound guy because um, the main character was addressing an audience into, you know, microphone and that sort of thing. So the sound guy would be in the back with headphones on, and he'd do, like, little reactions to what the, the character, the main character was saying, 
but he wasn't really involved in the script. So yeah, I, I can say so. Absolutely. Um, the thing with monologues, and I'm I'm not a really big monologue guy. I've you know I've written some, I've had some classes and that sort of thing. But um, the one thing that I can say is that really good monologues are not just somebody talking; they are a conversation. And one, the the person that you happen to see on stage talking is actually communicating something to a very specific person. Um, now, uh, or or a group of people in in the case of Noah and the HOA, um, talking to God is not necess- is kind of a cop out when it comes to monologues. Talking to yourself is a cop out. Um, address someone very specifically. This is not because once you do that, once you decide who the person who is monologuing is talking to, it adds a lot more depth. It gives you as the writer more places to go and. Um, more more details, more fleshing out of the character and of the situation. Monologues, really good monologues, don't occur in a vacuum. Um, but this is not the monologue show. Yes, it is totally possible to have a 10-minute play with only one character. Absolutely. Uh, what is more common amongst 10-minute festivals slash contests, comedy or drama? Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that. I don't know that one is necessarily... Um, globally more popular than the other. I think that really good plays are popular, but I think that because there is a dearth of really good plays, um, we tend to see a lot of mush. Um, I, I would say, I would say that really good play is a really good play and it doesn't matter if it's funny or if it's dramatic, though really good plays do tend to have elements of both. Um, so I don't know. I don't know that, uh, if 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 the thinking there is, should I be writing comedies because they're more popular? I wouldn't say that. I would say, um, you know, write your plays, write good plays, and they'll get done. Um, doesn't really matter. Now there are some festivals that will say this is an evening of ten minute comedies uh, or ten minute dramas or whatever. But um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that one is by default uh, more popular than the other. Can the playwright request certain clothing to be worn so long as it's a factor to the storyline? Yes, and that is uh, in large part of what we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, And I'm going to get to that, uh, and I'm going to not answer this quite yet. I'm going to answer that in a little bit. But I do want to go back to something that you said earlier in your letter um, that, uh, that was not actually a question. It was a statement. Uh, During the trip, I will be taking the GRE and later applying for my MFA in either playwriting or poetry. I'm going to talk about this for a second. Um, I, I, I think it is very worthwhile if you are considering a master's program in any kind of writing, whether it is playwriting or poetry or, or you know, you're going to UCLA for film or you're going to do, um, you know, whatever, whatever your writing focus is. I think it is very much worth asking the question of why what is this degree going to get you what do you want to use this degree for and i've not had any conversation with you daniel about your motivations here so i'm not going to address you specifically i'm just gonna talk a little bit about my personal decisions and what went into me deciding what sort of master's program that i wanted to do when i did one uh back in in 2002 uh 2000 2002 uh i i got my Masters in Liberal Arts, 
Uh, and this is interesting. This was a, an interesting process, and I'm going to just talk about this just briefly. The it was a I had a very sarcastic sort of response to people when uh, when it would come up that I was not going to get I didn't want an MFA in playwriting and what I would say was well I already know how to format what are they going to teach me and that's pretty obnoxious uh, what I liked about the the um, the Masters of Liberal Arts program that I had was that it was one of these design it yourself uh, programs. And because of that, there were two core requirements. One was, um, and both were basically the history of civilization, one from, um, you know, the early period and one from the more contemporary period. But everything else was, if I justify it because it's part of my program of study, they would let me take it. So I took playwriting and I took poetry and I took some production classes and I took, uh, and now here was my approach. As a writer, as someone who went into this M, uh, M, uh, the MLA program, all, having already written a bunch of stuff, what I was aware of was what my weaknesses as a writer were. And so I was looking specifically for a program that would address my weaknesses. And what I had identified as something that I wanted to address was my ability to have new ideas that I wasn't continually recycling my old ideas, and that I wanted to be able to write characters that were not me. Uh, and this is actually going to be a future episode when I talk about uh, in, in much more detail the result of that class, but, uh, or, or that line of thought. But, so the classes that I took were history of women in America, cultural and ethnic diversity, and stuff like this, so that I, as a Caucasian 30-something male, um, would at least have some history of... Although I I can't say what it's like to be a woman because I am not a woman, I now have a, a history. So I have some things to pull upon that I did not have before. Cultural and ethnic diversity would give me some background in in maybe the cultural issues or uh, religious struggles of different ethnic groups. So that even though now I'm not out writing all about ethnic women and that's not the focus of my writing, I feel better prepared to write characters that are not me. Uh, and I think that that is something worth doing. I think that if you're going to get an MFA in playwriting, there are, there are, two, there are two reasons why you should do that. One is because you want to be a better playwright, and the other is because you want a job. And if you want a playwright, if, if you want to be a better writer, then you specifically look for schools and programs that are designed around that. And if you're looking very specifically for a job, then you look for programs that have a really good record of placing playwrights or have, uh, you know, active internship programs that guarantee productions that, um, you know, the, the, uh, the chair of the theater department is also the artistic director of this theater. And they have this program where the playwrights in school go out and work in the theater. Um, they have a networking system in place. And if you're, it's, it's very, uh, it's a big issue that playwrights don't make any money. Um, so if your goal is to make money as a writer, I don't, uh, well, if your goal is to make money as a writer, I would rethink that whole uh, playwriting thing. Um, but, and I know, Daniel, that you did not ask me to go into all that kind of thing. Those are sort of my rough thoughts there, that, uh, that you be very specific about why you're looking for an MFA in playwriting. 
you nail it down to a very specific goal, and then you match that goal to a specific school that can provide you with that goal. Uh, because all programs are going to be very different, and they, they're all good for something, but it may not be what you're interested in uh, and what you're at that, in that program for. Yeah. So that's my response to Daniel's email. Very cool. Okay, so let's get on to costumes and props, and um, I'm going to do, uh, what am I going to do here? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with, with props a little bit, um, uh, and, and I sort of want to, because costumes and props are a similar thing. They're a little bit different from, you know, lights and sound, uh, though tech is, tech is all the same thing to an extent, uh, but costumes and props require a different energy different way of thinking and that sort of thing and it's really there's kind of this uh this misconception i don't know if it's a misconception there is a belief that specifying certain props or costumes has um a monetary cost and it does it does it, it costs us money to go get a bunch of stuff to put on stage it absolutely does but i think and from my experience it's not necessarily always the case that the buying or the making of the item is the most uh, uh, requires the the greatest cost in my experience it's been the manpower and the energy that goes into it because a lot of theater companies can make their own thing they can make their own costume and they can make their own prop but they need a skilled designer a skilled technician to pull off the manufacturing of that prop. So, um, so uh, just to talk a little bit about the difference between the, the difference between sort of like the quantity of props and the quality of specific props. Let's say that I'm going to talk about uh, two plays that I've mentioned before uh, that I've directed for the New Playhouse: The Early Miracle and Holmes and Watson. Early Miracle had a bunch of stuff. The design of the play of the early miracle was that it was a series of scenes set around this community with a number of different characters and a couple, just a couple actors playing a number of different characters, that kind of thing. And so they're all over the place. And to help define different locations and different times, we had a whole bunch of props, whole bunch of props, whole bunch of costumes. Now that play was contemporary and the vast majority of that stuff was easy enough for us to go get um, you know, uh, one of the scenes is in a, uh, a hair salon. So we had to get that cape. We got like that, that plastic thing that you stick over your head and we got like the, the hairdresser little brush and pick and all this kind of thing and a chair that we could wheel around. And that stuff wasn't hard to find. And it wasn't that it had a, a huge monetary, uh, value attached to it. It was just some stuff. We're like, okay, to set the scene, here are a couple little things that we need. That's reasonable. We can go get that stuff. And, and this is a small theater company. Yeah, okay. We want to set that scene. This is texture. This is, you know, a little bit of realism in this, uh, in this larger context that is not realism. And that's fun. And I don't have a problem with that. That's cool. Um, then we get into Holmes and Watson, which, of course, is a period piece. Uh, it is set in 1893, because 92, 93, because that's when Sherlock Holmes returned from the dead. Uh, after not falling off uh, Rickenback Falls uh, with Professor Moriarty, but uh, so he returned, and one of the um, a couple of specific, well, one, the one specific prop that I can think of that was kind of a pain for this show 
was the Edison cylinder recorder because starts off with uh, Watson, you know, setting the scene, doing like a doing the thing that you're supposed to do, creating the world, uh, opening up the world for the audience. Okay, here's a little thing. You know, he's like, I still remember the day when my friend Sherlock Holmes fell off the waterfall and died. And blah, blah, blah. And, and so to come up with uh, an Edison cylinder is, is kind of a big deal, especially if you're trying to establish a certain amount of realism to the show. Uh, now, we had a couple of options. We could either build the thing. We could try to buy one. Uh, we could try to make one. Uh, we could try to borrow one. Okay, so build it, buy it, borrow it. <laughs> so um, we uh, are uh, our, uh, the, the board president, Dave Ballinger, did spend some time on eBay trying to find out, uh, you know, looking for prices on Edison cylinders, uh, not only the wax cylinder themselves, but the whole device to see if we could come up with something like that. And although that was a possibility, a bit pricey, a bit pricey. And then if we're going to actually have the real thing, uh, we get into that sound issue from last episode where do we then have to have the sound coming out of the cylinder of the thing on stage? And if that's the case, then we actually have to use these wax cylinders or we have to alter the device somehow to put the speaker in it. And we ended up not buying one. Although we could have. We've, they're actually out there. You can actually find these damn things for sale. Uh, second option, we could build it ourselves. Uh, we, as a small theater company, are not necessarily the most proficient with building something like an Edison cylinder, uh, an Edison recorder. You know, how do you... Uh, I, can, I can put a platform together, and I can... <laughs> well, okay, I was about to say that I can build a door, but I tried building a door once, and that didn't work out so well at all. Um, but... Uh, so building it wasn't really an option for us. So we ended up finding, uh, there was that theater that I mentioned before up in Cumberland actually did a, another Sherlock Holmes play some years ago and they had built an Edison recorder. They had it sitting around. They were very gracious in loaning us that device. So, so as far as that prop goes, it's integral to the story that we have one of those things. And we liked this play enough to want to to say i don't know where we're going to get that thing but i'm going to commit to doing this play because this is a great play and it is one of these things where it did sort of fall into place um so if your dilemma is this is a contemporary play and i just want some stuff around i want some props um i think that's reasonable i think that you can do that i think that the danger comes uh in specifying props that something like an edison cylinder um, because then you get into the idea of uh, if it's a period piece and dealing with props and trying to, and then you, you come up with this dilemma. Do you, do you buy it? Do you borrow it? Do you build it? And f I, I guess ultimately, if it's a good play, it'll get done. I do believe that, and I've said that before, and I'll continue to say that. But it is one of these things, and I'm certain Lee Shackelford, the author of Holmes and Watson, can, can attest to the fact that... Um, because of some of his tech requirements, because this is a period piece, it's probably not getting done as often as if those tech requirements were not in the play. Um, but they're required to tell this story, and I don't think he should take them out of the play because that would diminish the power of the story the way that it exists today. So I, w I would say that. Um, other sort of prop uh, anecdote I'll throw at you. We have a local musical theater group uh, in our area, that is currently uh, preparing a production of Little Shop of Horrors. 
if you know Little Shop of Horrors, even if you've not worked on it or seen it, you know that there's this big man-eating plant, right? You got Audrey, and Audrey's going to eat you, because that's what Audrey does. So Little Shop of Horrors is about the big man-eating plant, right? So the, the rumor that um, a, a fairly reliable source has, has slipped my way is that this particular theater company, in an effort to cut costs, has decided not to rent the Audrey puppet, that they are instead going to attempt to build the different puppets. So, here's the thing. If you're going to do Little Shop of Horrors, you know, going into that production, that there's this big prop slash costume that is required for this show. You need... Th- this show is about the giant man-eating puppet. It's, it doesn't matter what the music is. It doesn't matter what the jokes are, what the dialogue is. It's about a big freaking man-eating plant, right? That's what the show is about. If you're going to do that show, you must... Commit to spending money to get that man-eating plant. Yeah. If you're going to cut costs, I recommend that if you're doing Little Shop of Horrors, you find another way to cut your costs. I will most likely not go see this show, but there's a part of me that really wants to because I want to see how they do it. Um, Not a theater company known for its gorgeous tech. Tech gets by. Certainly gets by. Um... And I'm not going to say any more than that, other than, um, you know, as writers, we're going to specify some stuff. And if your play is about, if the focus of your play requires some significant tech or costumey thing, um, just know that there's going to be some crazy-ass theater company out there that's going to try to do it, um, and it's going to look really, really not the way you wanted it to look. So... If it needs to happen, it needs to happen. Just be aware of what may happen if you do that. Yeah. All right, costumes. Let's move into costumes here. Um, Daniel, you asked me, um, can a playwright request certain clothing to be worn so long as it's a factor to the storyline? Yes. And in fact, I would say that is the only reason to specify uh, that there is specific costuming in the play. Let me, let me, so let me throw this at you here. Um, why do we as playwrights... And you'll see this. You'll see this in published plays where it lists like the cast of characters and all that. They may note that there is specific costuming requirements needed. They may say that Bob wears a suit or that Bob is in uh, torn jeans and a ratty t-shirt or something like that. They're going to specify Bob's stuff. And, and then it never comes up in the play. It never, it's never an issue in the dialogue. The fact that Bob's wearing ratty, torn-off jeans um, doesn't never come up. Doesn't, doesn't affect the story in a direct way. Then why do we do that? I think that um, I think there are two things here, two things to think about. One is that if you are, as I talked about in the last episode, setting the scene for the reader, as I talked about, you know, beginning of On Island has... Uh, ocean or island sort of sound effects with the seagulls and the waves and that sort of thing and then i don't particularly care if that if that makes it into the final version of the production and if i specify that this particular like okay on island main character and on island i have always seen as wearing some kind of trench coat um it's cold it's uh we're getting into the fall it's um they're outside a lot and i see her wearing a coat i at no point in the play specified 
uh, directly or indirectly that I see this character wearing a coat. As a writer, I totally see it. And I don't want to kill the actress by requiring that she wear this coat. Though at the same time, I don't see it as a significant plot point that she does wear this jacket. I see it in my mind, and if I were directing it, um, then I might say, hey, let's try a jacket. But as the playwright, I don't want to require that because you in, uh, or the, the theater company doing the production may have another vision. The actor may have another vision. The director, they may just not want to wear a coat. They don't see her as the kind of person that wears a coat. Maybe they see her in a hoodie. So it doesn't really matter. And I would actually prefer that uh, during the course of rehearsals and through the design process, if the actors, the director, the designers have come up with a better way to get that character across, that they throw out my idea because I'm not directing their production. I'm leaving that up to them. So if they have a better idea for how to how to physicalize and how to get the character's personality and uh, plot and subtext and all that thing across. And if they can do that by changing my costume requirements and putting in some others, and it works, power to them. I don't care. That's fine. Great. Go ahead. Have at it. Do it. Um, I, uh, there is a play of mine, a 10-minute play, where, I, where there is some specific costume requirements. I think this is kind of a fun example to throw out there. A 10-minute play of mine called Fieldwork. Um, there is a scene in this play where the young boy, uh, gets attacked by a swarm of angry caterpillars. Uh, the, the swarm is off stage. Uh, so he's on stage. He runs off, gets attacked by the caterpillars, comes back on. And when he comes back on, he's covered with caterpillars. And because, you know, it's fun to see him screaming about being covered with caterpillars. And that's kind of a fun thing. So... I actually, in my basement, have two shirts, uh, two identical shirts, one of them all covered with caterpillars, uh, because this is actually, I, I have occasion to produce this play uh, now and again, so I've got those shirts, uh, and that's kind of a fun thing, but you can do something like that. I would say that if you're, if you're wondering if you should require specific costuming because you want someone to be covered with caterpillars, yeah, that, that's a good reason. Um, not uh what's not a good reason is saying wear a trench coat because i think that would be cool but it doesn't really matter if they do or not yeah yeah that, i would i would say that uh and i did want to give some examples uh i i at one point uh through high school college was probably primarily an actor when it came to theater stuff and i've moved out of that i was very lucky to move my head out of the idea that i am an actor uh because I am not a very good actor. I can. There are some things that I can do very well. My favorite role was probably in um, Prelude to a Kiss when I played like Taylor, uh, Taylor, Tyler, the best friend, because that was great. I think I was in like four or five scenes and I showed up and had a joke and left, and I think that worked out well for me. Um, but I want to tell you about how costumes affected me as an actor. Just really quickly, I was the evil governor in a production of Zorro, The Curse of Capistrano, uh, back in college. And, um, and early costume uh, sketches that I saw for myself had me all in white as a kind of uh, popey looking figure. Um, and it was actually like multiple floors on the set. So I was up on the balcony giving the grand speeches and all this kind of thing. Small, small role. I did okay with that one. And... Um, Got to Tech Week and uh, went to put on my costume, and it was blue. It was blue. It was a change in color 
that for me as an actor, um, I would say did not affect my performance, but was just like a weird, like, I've always been thinking of myself as wearing white because those are the pictures you showed me. Why am I now wearing blue? Um, a confusion there. What was much worse than that for me as an actor was, uh, and I mentioned before how I really loved the play 1776. I was in a production um, many moons ago, and uh, I, if you know the play, I played uh, McNair, the congressional custodian. Here's one of the reasons why I'm a bad actor. I have no ability to do age. No ability to do age, an uh, almost equally bad ability at accents. So, um... So, um, so I'm in rehearsals and I'm trying to figure out how to do this. And I, of course, remember bad actor in this role with some very good actors. There were some equity people in this. Uh, there were some, some great, well-seasoned actors in this large cast, like 27 people, I think. And, and me being lame off in the corner, bringing in the rum. And, um, and, uh, so I went through all this stuff New, realizing that I can't do age, came across this idea that I was a little bit, maybe, my, my approach to the character became that I was maybe a little slow, maybe a little immature, started seeing myself as kind of like a, I don't know, a, a, someone who is sort of in, not necessarily in awe, but like, like an intern kind of figure rather than a crotchety old man. And got to Tech Week, got my wig, and it was gray. It was a gray-haired wig. And I want to say that of, of all the people, of all the, the members of the Continental Congress, maybe two of them, two of the others, had gray hair or partially gray wigs. And I, mine by far looked like I was supposed to be the oldest person there. And I went through that entire rehearsal process coming up with a character who was not, who was not old. And I got there... And it was a damn surprise to me that I was supposed to be the oldest person on stage. It was a three-week run, and it was well into the second week before I felt that I stopped sucking horribly because I literally got on stage, got the wig, went on for preview night, had no idea what I was doing, had lost all character and all that kind of thing. One of the reasons I don't act very often anymore, um, horrible costuming experience, um, so watch out for that kind of thing. Be careful of that. Um, um, so the other thing that I wanted to talk about, because we're talking about, uh, tech here and I'm wrapping up the idea of tech is I want to bring up my play techies because this is a play of my, my first full length play won uh, like an award at the American college theater festival when I was a grad student. So it was the play that made me think that, Hey, I could actually write some plays and maybe I could do this. So I wrote this play and they're, uh, so it's techies. And the story is that all the characters, it's, it's, a, it's a theater farce. And all the characters are technicians. Normally when you see a theater farce, you've got actors and directors. And you've got like the actor-director complex. And I felt that we haven't seen, that the theater audience has no idea what kind of tech goes into a play. So I wrote this play, and you know, murder mystery, of course, because all my plays are murder mysteries, and um, because the, uh, the set designers found dead, and all the tech are in the theater, and they have uh, 24 hours to get the set built, and they haven't started yet, none of them like each other, and hilarity ensues. But the idea for my tech design of this play, which I still think is brilliant, is um, starts off with an empty stage, because up until this point, they haven't built anything. By the end of the first act... 
having they don't have the set uh, design. They don't have plans. The designer's dead. So they've just been bringing on all kinds of stuff. By the end of the first act, stage is covered with junk. Um, end of the second act, they have taken all of that junk and actually assembled it into a working, realistic set. Um, so what I've done in that play was, was saying that this stage has a bunch of stuff on it. There are a lot of props. There are set pieces. There are costume pieces. There's stuff all over the place. And to the largest extent... I don't care what that stuff is. Uh, it doesn't matter to me if you have an empty gas can on stage or not. Um, I th- and I, I think I had some, somewhere in like the, um, uh, on like the author's notes, it said something like, um, if you have stuff out in the lobby that after the show begins, you can send some people out to the lobby and get that stuff and bring that on stage so that they're like, hey, we walked by that in the lobby. That would be pretty cool. Um, high-tech show, though... My idea being that because I wasn't specific about it, in theory, if you, the last show you did was Grease, you can bring on a whole bunch of Grease stuff and recycle props and recycle set, hopefully, and make it, yes, uh, tech-heavy, but tech-easy because you can use whatever you want. Uh, and I guess that's kind of a good example of my philosophy on tech, um, be specific if you need to, but leave all the designers and the production team room to change your ideas so that it fits the production of the play. And only be specific about this stuff if it needs to be specific. Use all the stuff that you need to if it needs to be there, but give people room to improve on your ideas. Give people room to grow and to come up with something that you couldn't have come up with on your own, because this is a collaborative medium. Yeah, we're all in the same gang. We're all in it together. Rock and roll. Woo. All right. All right, so that's about it. This was episode 6.3 of Theatrically Speaking, almost a playwriting podcast. My name is Jonah Knight. You can find more information about me because you know you want to find more information about me. You can do that at www.jonahofthesea.com. You can look on MySpace and Facebook, and you can send me emails at Jonah at JonahOfTheSea.com. And that is all for today. Thank you for listening, and I will talk at you later.